0: Exodus 33, it's about uh, 32 verses, and it's all part of the same story that we've been following before when Moses went up to the mountain to get the instructions for the tabernacle, and while he was up there, the people of Israel made a false god, a a golden cow, worshipped it, and broke the covenant. Now what? So Moses mediated, and God didn't kill them on the spot. Moses restored order, and we pick up the story. This is halfway through the story. So they're, they're recovering, responding to their breaking of the covenant that had just been made. So in verse 1 it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Depart and go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. And I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the children of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. I could come up into your midst in one moment and consume you. Now, therefore, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do to you. So the children of Israel stripped themselves of their their ornaments by Mount Horeb. Moses took his tent and pitched it outside the camp, far from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of meeting. And it came to pass that everyone who sought the Lord went out to the tabernacle of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it was, whenever Moses went out to the tabernacle, that all the people rose And each man stood at his tent door and watched Moses until he had gone into the tabernacle. And it came to pass when Moses entered the tabernacle that the pillar of cloud descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle, and the Lord talked with Moses. All the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the tabernacle door, and all the people rose and worshipped, each man in his tent door. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And he would return to the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man did not depart from the tabernacle. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now therefore I pray, if I found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight and consider that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you and I'll give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken, for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. And he, Moses, said, Please, show me your glory. And the Lord said, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, and I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me you shall stand on the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I'll take away my hand, and you shall see my back my face you shall not see, shall not be seen. And the Lord said to Moses, Cut two tablets of stone like the first ones, and I'll write on these tablets the words which were on the first tablets which you broke. So be ready in the morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourselves to me there on the top of the mountain. And no man shall come up with you, and let no man be seen throughout all the mountain. Let neither flocks nor herds feed before that mountain. So he cut two tablets of stone like the first ones. Then Moses rose early in the morning, And went up Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and he took in his hands the two tablets of stone. Now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clearing the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth in worship. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. It's quite an interaction here. It's the razor's edge for Israel. And in this passage, it's going to answer some big questions. What is that thing that is essential to life? Or is there even a thing? What's the key to everything? We talk about a sentence called the theory of everything. Or is there even one? Is moving forward about a combination of things working together to give you something? Or is there just one thing that you need? An essential, irreducible necessity. In this passage, the personal presence of God, when lost, renders all his gifts irrelevant. And to regain his presence, there must be a person to reconcile who loves both God and the lost. See, this passage tells us something about the meaning of life. So Israel broke the covenant. God says, I'm going to kill you because that's what happens when you break the covenant. Moses says, please don't kill them. Have mercy. God says, okay, I won't kill them. Problem solved, right? Well, what about the promises? But God says to them in verse one, depart and go off from here, you and the people whom you brought to the land of Egypt to the land. And I will send my angel before you and I'll give you everything you want. That sounds great, doesn't it? Instead of being killed for breaking the covenant, God says, go into the land that I promised you. I'll go before you and drive out all the bad people that you can't fight. I'll give you peace. I'll give you prosperity, a land flowing with milk and honey. I'll give you power. That's what everybody wants, isn't it? Peace, prosperity, and power. But God says, I won't go with you. You can have everything you want, except for me. That's quite a choice, isn't it? Yeah. You see, one of the reasons we read the Bible is because we never get this choice, do we? Where it's broken down to the very core. If you could have everything you want, would you take it if it didn't come with God? Now, our first answer is, oh, of course. But think about it. There's no downside in your life. You'll be healthy. Your family will be healthy. Kids will be healthy. Your job will be great. Your politics will always prevail. What else is there? That's what was offered to Israel. Is that why you are a Christian? Is that why you come to church? Because it gives you things. It gives you community, perhaps. Or it gives you a sense of well-being. Or it gives you encouragement. All good things. It even gives you a sense of what's right and wrong. And a code to live by and ethics and justice, and all of those good things, is that why you're a Christian? The Bible is going to show us the story so that you have to choose in a way that never practically will happen in your life. Will you choose God, or will you choose all of God's gifts? You see, Jesus himself had to do this. Satan came to Jesus in person and took him up into a very high mountain. And he said, you see all, he showed him all the glory of the kingdoms of earth. And Satan says, I'll give you everything you can see in all the earth. I'll give it to you. I promise. If you'll bow down and worship me. You see the choice presented to Jesus? It's the same choice presented to Israel. Everything or God. And it's also a reverse choice. Are you going to lose everything for God? C.S. Lewis says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So the word's confronting us. What will make you happy? God says, I'm not going to go up with you, not because I'm punishing you, but because I'm sparing you. You see, He says here in verse two, I'll give you everything. Verse three, go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way. God says, I'm holy and you are sinful. You can't go two weeks without making a false God. And if I stick around with you, I'll kill you. So for your sake, I'm going to let you have what you want without me. You see how tempting that sounds, but also how deadly? God's punishment sometimes looks like giving you everything you want. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And you know what the richest country in the history of the world is? America. Perhaps you shouldn't call money and prosperity a blessing. Perhaps it's God's punishment to give us everything we want except for Him. Romans 1 says, when they rejected God, He gave them over to their desires. You see, we want God's blessing. But if you choose God's blessing without God, He may just give it to you. And as a result, you doom yourself. So Israel is faced with this. And when the people heard this bad news, the bad news of you get everything you want except for God, they were smart enough. We give the people of Israel bad rap all the time, don't we? But at this point, they saw the truth. And when the people heard this bad news, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. They saw what was happening. They saw that they didn't want God's blessings without God. And they lamented. We don't talk much about lamenting because we're supposed to be happy as Christians, right? It's all about joy and peace and happiness and outward smiling. But look here. Why'd they lament? They lamented because they'd done something already in the past that they could not change. The past was set. The damage had been done. They couldn't go back and change what had happened. When you realize that you can't change the past and you realize how bad the past was, your response is lament, is mourning, is sorrow. But it's even more than that. Why'd they mourn? Not just because of what happened in the past, but because they realized the problem was so deep they couldn't fix it. It wasn't just that they messed up and now they're going to do better. They realized there was a systemic problem in their very core, and they stood before God and says, we can't change the past, and we can't change the future. We will fail you. All is lost. The powers that control us are too strong to face. You see, a Christian should recognize that lament is biblical. If you watched the news this week, did you feel a sense of powerlessness? A sense that no matter what happened, it was going to be bad. You know why you felt that? Because it's true. It's true that no matter what happens, this world is going to wrong people. It's going to withhold justice. It's going to use power to oppress. So we lament because we see the truth. We see the truth that without God, no matter how many other things you get, it's bad. So often, we want to jump right to the solution. You see what this passage doesn't do? It doesn't go to the solution. They just stood there and wept. If we don't take time to just stop and say, sin is bad, and it's here, we minimize sin. We minimize corruption in this world. We minimize oppression. Sometimes the answer is to stop and just say, it's bad. Mourn with those who mourn take the time to stop and realize the seriousness and not jump to the solution. That's hard because we want to be cheerful. But that's an illusion. And so the children of Israel, Israel, they took off their ornaments, which was symbolic, like sackcloth and ashes. And they took the time and they said, all is lost. It can't be fixed. The point of Exodus was ruined. You know what the point of Exodus was? That God would get his people and bring them to be with him. That's been lost. This is a repeat of the Garden of Eden. What was the point of the Garden of Eden? That God would be with man. But then man sinned and all was lost. The presence was lost. The connection was broken. And that's what happened here. Everything God had done in Egypt had been undone. The question that they're asking now is, where is God? Where is God? And if you never ask that question, you're living a lie. You have created a fantasy where everything's good. The problem with that is the minute something bad happens to you, your fantasy's torn down and you're faced with life. And like the psalmist, you'll say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? don't be more spiritual than the Bible. Don't be more joyful than the Bible. Don't be more holy than the Bible. And in the Bible, people stop and they lament and they say, where is God in the midst of this? And sometimes God has removed his presence. And that's why things are bad. The reason politics are corrupt is because God's not in them. The reason you're corrupt is because you've left God. And that is a cause for lament. But there's someone in this story who's not lamenting. That's Moses. Moses stays with God. Moses didn't break the covenant. So what happens? He says, I want to be with God. But he can't be with God with the people because they rejected him. They've broken the covenant. So he takes his tent and he sets it up outside the camp really far away. And he says, when I want to go meet with God, I leave everybody behind and I go to the tent. And it says that everyone stood in his door and watched Moses. They watched as Moses walked away from them to meet with God. Can you imagine the despair as you stood in your doorway and watched the only person that could talk to God walk away from you to go outside the camp and meet? And Moses would. The glory of God came down. So the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. See the contrast? Moses and God are friends. God and Israel are enemies. So Moses and Joshua are the only ones who stay because Moses and Joshua are the only ones who didn't break the covenant. They're the only ones who can enjoy God's presence. Moses wants God. Look at verse 13. So Moses is speaking with God. He says, now therefore I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you And that I might find grace in your sight. What did Moses want? He wanted God. That's why he didn't break the covenant. He wanted God. And so he says, God, show me your grace. Show me your face. Let me know you. I want to be with you. But here's why Moses is such a great man and one of the greatest men in the Bible. And consider that this nation is your people. And so God says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses' prayer was that he would have God, and God says, you'll have it. But then Moses says, that's not enough. Why is that not enough? He says, then he said, if your presence does not go with us, not just with me, but with us, do not bring us up from here. Moses says, I want you, but I want them too. I don't want them, and I'm not going to follow them in that way, to follow away from you, but I want you to bring them with us. And if you don't go with us, there's no point in leaving. Moses says, if God is not with us, then leave us in the desert to die. This is why Moses is able to approach God. Because he wants God, and he wants the people to be with God. And he's not content to be with God by himself. God would have given him everything he wanted, including his own presence. And Moses says, I want that, but I want them to join with me. Have mercy on them for my sake. He said, for then how will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us. So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. What made life special? God being with them. You know what Moses is doing here? He's identifying with God and the people at the same time. There's a tension there. He's trying to hold them together. He's being torn apart by the sin of the people and his love for God, and he won't let go. He says, God, I'm 100% with you. But if you won't bring your people up, I'm going to die with them. A mediator who's going between two groups. Do you have conflicts in this church? Unless there's someone who's going to go for both of you, the conflict won't be resolved. How do you fix problems with people? You find someone who's on both of your sides. This is just a practical community living. The reason you have conflicts is because you've got your side and they've got their side. And unless someone steps in the middle and brings the, both sides together, there's no, there's no solution. Moses is showing how to live in a group, how to live in a community where people do the wrong thing. Someone who has not done the wrong thing must go for them, must mend the gap. Moses doesn't give up. You see Moses' persistence? God's like, look, just leave them. You and me. I'll give you everything and I'll go with you. Moses like, that's great and I want that. But one more time, if I found grace in your sight, if you love me, take care of them. If you know my name, then take care of them. Why didn't Moses give up? Because Moses loved the people. You see, this is where Christ comes in. Christ didn't just die for us. Hebrews 7 says, But he, Christ, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You know what Jesus' job is? You know what he lives for? Getting you on God's side. He doesn't give up. He's always working on your benefit. He's always for you. You notice how powerful that is? Jesus is always for you. There's not another person in this universe that's always for you. And if you don't know that yet, life's going to be hard. Because people don't always care about you. Except for Jesus. Just like Moses, not giving up, Jesus lives. He is in existence in heaven as a man for you. That's the burden that he's taken on. He could have left us and enjoyed God's presence because he deserved it. But he said, no, that's not enough for me. I want them to enjoy it too. So I'll work for it every day forever. So no matter what you've done wrong, how many gods you've served, how many idols you've sacrificed to, Jesus is working for you if you want him to. Now, why wouldn't you want Jesus to work for you? That's the question the Bible asks. Do you want God or do you want stuff? If you want God, you can have God through Christ. But you can have a lot of other stuff without God. Which do you want? Do you want an advocate or do you want stuff? Do you want Christ or do you want relationships on earth? Moses wanted God and he went to the people for, he went to God for the people why is this story here? Doesn't it seem like God's just kind of being manipulated by Moses? Like, is this how we're supposed to view God? That if you just sort of get on his nerves enough, he's like, fine, I'll give you what you want. Right? Like, why is God changing his mind so much? This story is for us. This story says, here's how you should behave. You know why Moses found grace in God's sight? Because Moses did this. You see, Moses didn't break the covenant. Why? Because he's better than the Israelites? No, because he was on the mountain with God. That's the only difference between Moses and Aaron. Moses was talking to God and Aaron wasn't. So Moses Moses and Joshua, their interaction with God, the grace of being in God's presence kept them from destruction. Do you want to not be Israel? Do you want to be like Moses? The only difference is, are you in God's presence or not? That's the difference. Moses understood that he was nothing. He says over and over seven times, let me find grace. He knew he was nothing. He knew that all he had was because he was in God's presence. And the very presence of God, the very act of him asking changed him. The very act of going to God made Moses a different person. That's the key here for us. It's not manipulating God, trying to get him to do something. It's becoming different in God's presence. Prayer is not to get God to do what you want. It's to become the kind of person that God wants. So Moses is a different person, but Moses doesn't quit. God says, I'll go with you. Verse 17. So the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken for you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. So God says, I'll be back with Israel because of you, Moses. And Moses says, one more thing. One more thing. Show me your glory. You see the boldness of Moses? He said, thank you for going with us, but can I have more? Can I have just some more? Moses, just remember the last chapter, he went up to the mountaintop and he ate and he saw the, saw God's, the throne of God and saw his feet and experienced this beautiful thing. Moses was like, that was great. I want more. Moses pursues God. He seeks an interaction with God and he's not satisfied for one time. He pursues it. But more, he wants more and more and more of God. This is why Moses is different because Moses wants God himself. He wasn't content to be in the land with all the stuff. He wanted God, and he wanted a better experience of it. What'd God say? He's like, enough. I gave you what you wanted. Stop asking for more. No, because God had a purpose here that didn't change the whole time. God's purpose was the same from the beginning to the end. It seems like God's changing his mind and working with Moses. It's not. He wants one thing from Moses, that Moses would worship him. And so he puts this, lay, this plan out so that Moses will worship him. And Moses does. He says, I will show me your glory. Then he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I'll proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. God had a plan here, and that was to show Moses his glory. That's been God's plan since the beginning. The reason he created man was to share the experience of his glory. The reason we exist now is for the same thing. You know why Jesus came to this earth? To share heaven with us, to share God's presence with us. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying his very last prayer as a high priest, just like Moses. And Jesus says to God, to the Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work you have given me to, you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus had it. He didn't have to earn it. He didn't have to work for it. He had it. So why did he come to earth? If he already had the glory, why did he come to earth? And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. God didn't experience love when he created us. He had love. So why did he create us? To share it with us. You see the grace of God, the grace of Jesus coming down to this earth, not because he needed anything, but taking on our burden so that he could share the glory with us. That's what Moses wanted, but that's what God already wanted. Moses just figured it out. God had the whole time saying, I want to show you my glory. Moses is like, hey, show me your glory. God's like, exactly. Nothing's changed. What is the chief end of man? to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our own catechism says God created us male and female in His own image to know Him, love Him, live with Him, and glorify Him. And it is right that we who are created by God should live to His glory. Our very created nature means we're never happy till we're with God. Now question yourself. Do you struggle with loneliness, with unhappiness, with frustration, with fear? Why? Because you've been cut off from God. You're working against the grain. You're defying nature. So God says, I'll I'll show you my glory. He says, but I'll kill you if I do. He says, I'll put you in a rock, and I'll cover you with my hand while I pass by. When I take away my hand, you'll see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What's going on here? Moses says, I want to see your glory. God says, yes, but I'll kill you so I'll protect you from it, just like he protected Israel. That hasn't changed. If God doesn't protect you from himself, he'll destroy you. In Revelation chapter 6, this is the end, this is the future, and I looked when he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, the sun became black, the moon became like blood, the sky receded as a scroll when it was rolled up, every mountain moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, The commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? You see how nothing's changed? They hid themselves in a rock, just like Moses. And they said, don't let God see us. He'll kill us if he does. If if Moses had it 3,000 years ago and Revelation is the future, where are you right now? The only reason you're not afraid is because you don't think God's looking at you with open gaze. Sometimes that means you're ignorant of God's wrath. You think you're okay. But one day it'll be revealed that unless something protects you and covers you, you'll beg for the rocks to fall on you. Death will be preferable to God. Death is preferable to God? You see the choice again? Everything or God? And when you reject God, you prefer death. Perhaps hell is getting exactly what you want. Hell is being ignored by God, finally. Finally being out of God's direct gaze. Because if he looked at you, he'd kill you. You can't stand the gaze of God. But Moses wanted to see God. God is offering us something. He's offering us himself with protections. And so God reveals himself to Moses. God proclaims his glory. Isn't it interesting? What did the people of Israel want with the golden calf? Moses, they didn't see. They couldn't see Moses. They couldn't see God. So they said, make us an idol we can see and they made a false God. But, the, but that, that urge is real because Moses asked for the same thing. He says, show me your glory. Let me see it. I need to see it. What does God do? Does he show Moses his glory? Look in chapter 34 and verse six, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. When God said, let me see your glory, God spoke. Moses wanted to see God, but God says, listen, you can't see me. It'll kill you, so listen. And then he says, here's who I am, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, by no means clearing the guilty. He says, I am the God who forgives all sins and punishes all sins. There may not be a more important verse in the whole Bible than these verses, I am the Lord who forgives all sins and transgressions and by no means clears the guilty. Moses wanted to see God's goodness and glory. So God says, here's what it is. I love everybody and I forgive everybody and I punish everybody. You see, if God is all love and all forgiveness, that's just mushy. What kind of God is that who just never gets upset about anything? who just never pursues justice, who overlooks every form of oppression, who just is always just, everything's fine. Do you want to serve that kind of God who never says, that's wrong, I won't stand for it? You can't treat people that way, that can't stand? A God of all love is just mushy, but a God of all justice is terrifying and harsh. No one escapes. You see, you want to be in a community that's just? That kind of community can't stand because it kills everybody. You want to be in a church where justice is always pursued? Guess what? You'll be kicked out. But if you're in a church where it's all love, what about the bad stuff? You just let it go? So God says, I'll show you who I am. I'm both. I'm forgiving and loving, and you can come to me whenever but I hate every sort of injustice and evil. And a paradox is created. A paradox that no one can resolve because humans are one or the other, but God is both. And he said, this is my goodness. The goodness of God is mercy and justice combined. So how do we resolve it? The paradox of God here is solved by another paradox, that of Christ. The mystery of how God can be loving and forgiving is solved by creating a new mystery of how God can be man. You never actually get to the bottom of it. If you want to figure life out and figure the Bible out, give up now. The mysteries are just solved by new mysteries. And so Christ reveals this new mystery. Christ is seeing God in the flesh and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Finally, we can see God in Jesus. Don't wish you were Moses. Don't be like, man, I wish I was on that mountain. Moses longed to see our day. Seeing God in the flesh, seeing the face of God and not dying. That's what Jesus offers. But how does he do it? The immense weight of perfect justice and perfect forgiveness is, are both put on Christ. How can you forgive everybody and punish everybody? Jesus says, I'll do it. I'll do it. But that's impossible. Yep. But God can do it. And so God comes to the earth and takes on both and goes to the cross. And on the cross, what happens? Jesus says, God, I need you. I want to see your face. And God ignored him. For the first time in the eternal history of everything, Christ was ignored. God turned his face away from him and says, don't talk to me. I don't know who you are. I'm going to pretend like you're not there. And Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God didn't answer. Ignored so that we could be heard. You see, remember the lament of the past and the future that couldn't be changed. It doesn't end there because Christ actually did that. He forgave your past and he forgave your future. You say that's impossible. It is impossible unless God himself comes down and dies on a cross and is ignored by God himself. So now your past is fixed and now your future is fixed. But what about the systemic problems? Christ fixed those too. You see, the power of God in our lives goes from the root out. You ever trimmed a tree? What happens? It just comes back. But if you pull it up by the roots, the the leaves are green for a little while. If you are concerned for justice, God has killed the roots of injustice. And while the leaves are green for a while, the end is coming. God has killed the roots of your sin. And while you're still suffering some of the consequences, the end is coming. You see what God has offered? To fix everything, past and future. If you can see this Christ fulfilling what Moses couldn't, it will change you. It will change you from the inside in a way you can't explain. By seeing Christ take your sin and forgive, you can respond like Moses did. See, Moses didn't understand what he was saying, but he knew something. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshiped. Then he said, if now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are stiff-necked, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us into your inheritance. Moses prayed, and he prayed for two things. He said, God, I know we're terrible people, and that's not going to change just because we're here. God's presence didn't change the facts. But then he said, but I have hope that you'll forgive us. When you pray, do you feel those things? Are you honest with yourself? If you're not honest with yourself, you've forgotten what Jesus was dying for. To see Christ suffer on the cross is to look at yourself and say, that's my fault. It's to look at the world and say, it's that bad, and it's getting worse. Every new sin that you see has already been put on Christ. You see how the weight increases? Every breaking news, every report, every death, every oppression makes you realize how much heavier the weight was. You can't overlook that. Our prayers of confession every week are to train you to see how bad the world is but to see that Christ has fixed it. And so Moses says, I know we are a stiff-necked people, but forgive us anyway. So now you pray with hope. Why should God listen to terrible people? Because Christ died. Why should he listen to you? Because Christ died. And if Christ was ignored, then you don't have to be. Only in Jesus are you going to find this which means if you reject Christ, you reject everything. And you may be happy for a while, and you may have money for a while, and you may have a family for a while, but you won't have God. And you'll die alone and guilty and oppressed. But if you accept Christ, then God will turn his face towards you and he'll never look away spray.